those of us who work in the realm of psychology are inundated with acronyms. Every day, I'm trying to sort through whether I'm dealing with the CMHA or the CMHC. I'm trying to remember that when people say CAMI, what they mean is the acronym C-A-M-I-M-H, or the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health. I get calls here at the CPA for chartered professional accountants, the Canadian Psychiatric Association, and on one occasion, the Chicago Party Ant, a woman who briefly ran for president of the United States against Joe Biden, Donald Trump, and Kanye West. Today, on this episode of the podcast of the Canadian Psychological Association, or if you will, the CPA, we are going to talk about a very specific acronym, MBCT. Welcome to Mindful. My name is Eric. I'm the communications person at the CPA and the host of Mindful. Today, I'm not going to be doing much in the way of hosting. Instead, I'm turning over those duties to Tess, William, Noreen, and Tina. They are the students in Jim Cresswell's History of Psychology class at the University of Calgary. And as a final project in the class, they recorded a podcast of their own, introducing the concept of MBCT, or Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy. Then, later, the students will speak with Dr. Zindel Siegel, a modern-day MBCT expert and one of the people who helped develop the treatment. So what is MBCT exactly? I will let Tina, Noreen, William, and Tess explain. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. My name is Tessa, and I'm joined with... Noreen. Will. And Tina. Today, we'll be talking about mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and how it's developed into a clinical treatment. So Tina's going to give us some insight into what this looks like. So Tina, do you want to start us off? Sure. So before we dive in, let's go over some key terms that might be helpful for you to know. The first is mindfulness, which can be defined as being aware of the present moment and doing so in a non-judgmental and accepting manner. Mindfulness is often practiced when individuals engage in activities such as meditation. Meditation can be defined as the intentional practice of mindfulness in order to try and train one's personal awareness and try to achieve a stable and clear state of mind. Since our main topic for today is MBCT, it might be important to know what it is. <laughs> so MBCT is a mindfulness-based intervention that includes certain elements of CBT. It's an eight-week program that consists of weekly two-hour sessions. And the sessions include meditation practice, breathing spaces, and awareness of routine daily activities. So participants are also given homework in the form of 45-minute practice of mindfulness activities. So now that you have all the information under your belt, let's travel back to where it all began. Thanks so much, Tina. Mindfulness is such an interesting concept and it's fairly new to mainstream media compared to other theories such as Freud's theory of psychoanalysis, gestalt theory, and behaviorism, just to name a few. So there must be a lot of curiosity as to where exactly mindfulness came from. Well, we can thank Eastern literature and Eastern history for introducing us to the concept of mindfulness, more specifically to Buddhism and Buddhist texts and teachings. So Noreen, isn't it common in Buddhism to take part in meditation or something like that? Yeah, exactly. Buddhist practices centered on meditation, and a lot of meditational techniques focus on the idea of cultivating mindfulness. So what I mean by that is that an individual who's practicing Buddhism would go and meditate, and while they're meditating, this person would go and observe their own mental state cool. by taking note of any feelings or thoughts that they're currently experiencing right at that very moment. And it's through this meditation and observation that they're really able to become aware of themselves 
and their current surroundings, which is basically the main idea of mindfulness. So Noreen, in terms of other types of meditation, is there anything besides Buddhist meditation that doesn't focus just on mindfulness per se? Yeah, there are definitely other forms of meditation, such as transcendental meditation and insight meditation. But it was really through meditation in general and the practice of meditation that introduced this concept to us. Around the 1970s, Western psychologists applied techniques found in meditation to their work and research. They would take these mindfulness-based meditation techniques and use it as another form of treatment for their patients. So usually these techniques would be administered alongside their primary treatment in a therapy program, but they were really able to find significant improvements in their patients' results. It basically just snowballed from there. By the end of the 1970s, the psychological community was in a frenzy. There was a growing abundance of literature on the use of meditation and its possible application in clinical settings. So moving forward from what Noreen was talking about into the 1980s and uh, early 2000s, we move forward into the bridge between those religious backgrounds and those clinical applications. Um, and we actually found similarities between religions in the sense that they form a meditative state. So um, Tessa, can you tell me how was meditation shown in religion? Yeah, so if we look at the wide variety of religions that we actually have, prayer itself forms that meditative state in us people and can actually mimic the effects of the focused meditation. Now, applying that into more of the clinical studies, I looked at two uh, specific studies, one dealing with depression and one with dealing uh, with patients with traumatic experiences. And they actually studied how the use of MBCT affected these patients. So in our depression study, they used what was called an attentional control technique or ACT. And they used this to rewire the brain through mindfulness meditation. Now in our trauma study, they used five patients with different trauma experiences and actually used a combination of MBCT and the traditional psychotherapy that we would normally see. And when actually looking at the results of these two studies, we found similar um, results in the symptoms. So there was alleviation of results of depressive symptoms as well as depressive relapse. And in our trauma patients, their symptoms decreased dramatically. So it's kind of crazy to think that something as simple as meditation can have such an impact on individuals. And overall, these studies show us the benefits of meditation in a variety of scenarios. You know, and it really makes me think if meditation has such an impact on these patients, what could it do when applied to everyday life? So Will has a bit more insight into the modern day clinical uses of MBCT. So Will, can you tell us a little bit more about that? So here we are at the top of the 2000s, and MBCT was still pretty entrenched in theoretical applications of mindfulness and meditation. And this is where we saw a shift to more clinical applications, specifically for treating depression. And this led to an explosion of empirical research. So early on, Teasdale, who's a recurring character here, and colleagues employed a version of MBCT for patients suffering from major depression with the goal of stopping depressogenic thinking right in its tracks. And this opened up MBCT for further exploration. And throughout the 2000s, studies with depression got more in-depth and were backed by more and more statistical rigor. One of the most important takeaways is that, despite how severe their symptoms were, these patients generally followed through with quite low dropout rates. And that's really a testament to how accessible MBCT is, which is something we're going to discuss later on. So with MBCT, did they try the intervention on any other disorders? Yes, actually. So throughout the decade, researchers applied mindfulness to bipolar disorder, suicidal ideation, and anxiety disorders, 
all with pretty promising results. Cool. And the through line here is the idea of taking an intrusive thought, be it the onset of a depressive state, worry and rumination, etc., intercepting it, diffusing it, and learning from it. Hmm. And that's the thing that I think is really remarkable at MBCT and the broader concept of mindfulness is this idea that it's inherently accepting of whatever the content of thoughts are, no matter how grim the subject matter is therein. The point of MBCT, instead of trying to change that content from bad to good, is to change the process behind it. And Tina's going to expand on this a bit further, but it's a unique approach that gets away from any type of compartmentalizing or downplaying or repressing that dark thought content. Instead, you're saying, okay, whoa, where'd this thought come from? Why did it form like this? And what does it tell me about how I think? And that fundamental acceptance of our cognitions teaches us that our thoughts can be flawed, even inherently so. But that doesn't mean that we ourselves are flawed. Our thoughts can make us a bunch of terrible things. They can make us depressed, anxious, or worse, but that does not define who we are. It puts us back in the driver's seat over our brain and its often maladaptive tendencies. And I think that's a really open-minded and humanistic approach to psychological intervention. Tina's going to talk a little bit more about mindfulness, MBCT, and its place in contemporary psychology. Wow, thanks, Will. I really like the point you brought about giving individuals back a sense of control. So now that we're in modern days, as Will mentioned, at the beginning of the 2000s, there was a shift to clinical applications, and most research today still focuses on how MBCT can be applied to a wide range of psychological problems and populations. What I found most interesting, though, were the studies that compared MBCT to CBT, because MBCT does contain elements of CBT, but are the two interventions distinct from each other? As it turns out, MBCT and CBT are distinct in that MBCT can be viewed as its own form of therapy. And let me briefly go over why. So first, when you compare the key features of both interventions, you will see that the focus of each intervention is different from each other. MBCT focuses on the individual's awareness of the relationship they have with their thoughts and feelings, whereas CBT focuses on trying to change or alter the individual's thought content. Secondly, studies have compared the two and found that the effectiveness of MBCT and CBT were kind of similar to each other and that it was the approaches of each interventions that were different. So Tovot and his colleagues in 2014 compared MBCT and CBT to a waitlist control for treating participants who suffered from depression. The study found that MBCT addressed the problems through yoga and meditation to increase the participants' awareness of their negative thoughts, while CBT addressed the problem by getting participants to engage in pleasant activities more often to decrease the occurrence of their negative thoughts. And lastly, studies have shown that MBCT and CBT target different populations as well as different symptoms that participants are experiencing. So what exactly do you mean by different populations and different symptoms? Oh, great question, Will. So a study done in 2011 by Manny Kavaskar and his colleagues found that MBCT and CBT had similar effects on their participants who suffered non-melancholic depression, but CBT was found to be more effective for those who had four or more episodes of depression, whereas MBCT was as equally effective regardless of how many previous episodes the participants have had. Another study by Grensman and his colleagues found that MBCT was better than CBT at reducing negative feelings as well as increasing the participants quality of sleep. So these studies really show how different MBCT and CBT are and that MBCT is a therapy of its own because it's able to target a different population and can affect certain symptoms way more than others. Now knowing what we know, what are some implications of these findings? Thanks Tina! 
Um, so yeah, implications. I think this is a super cool topic. In terms of meditation, I think that's um, accessible to a lot of different people in a variety of ways. Yeah, just to jump in there, I think this goes along with today's trend in, in our culture that emphasizes mental health as much as a physical health. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I think that's come along with that is at the very least a destigmatization yeah, sure. of things like meditation and kind of these at-home approaches of keeping, you know, worry and anxiety and rumination under check and, you know, keeping a pulse and a watch on your thoughts and your thought contents and your thought processes and really taking care of one's own mental health. And what's come along with that, I think are some really accessible ways that people can tap into using mindfulness and meditation and you know the fundamental principles of MBCT mm. you know at home for themselves and you know that's without necessarily having to go to formal therapy and and that in itself is of course a, a very you know a very brave big thing to do it's a huge step that someone can take uh, to pursue professional help and you know this is something that if someone's thinking about that if they're curious about this or they want to see if it works for them. Uh, employing these these principles is something they can now do with apps like Headspace and Calmer, a couple that uh, that I know about. They can employ these practices really at home, anywhere, in the comfort of their own uh, own house, own room. All they really need is a yoga mat. And it's really all about you know what we talked about earlier about controlling your thought processes mm -hmm. and very non-judgmentally letting these things um, you know, flow through you. And I think that's really a testament to how accessible um, you know mindfulness has become, and maybe this idea of crossing over from the formal uh, therapy setting to something that anyone can do from anywhere. And, and, and apps like these, and, and whether it's a YouTube video or an online session, you can, you can employ those same principles. And uh, I think that's a really great example of how mindfulness of, of all the you know, teachings and methods of, of, of psychotherapy has really been democratized and become something that you know, anyone can truly access for themselves. Yeah, I think that's super cool that we have access to technology like that that's so easily um, used by so many of us. Yeah, I would agree. Like for accessibility, it's definitely super easy because a lot of them are free and you don't have to pay. But like, I know like there are some people that would want to be more invested, but not obviously go to, <laughs> would not have the means to go to therapy. There's a lot of programs that they could look up in or maybe like YouTube stuff like that like videos that they could just watch yeah for sure and I guess adding on to that something as simple as hanging out with friends or going outside on a walk finding a hobby can even generate those same sort of meditative states or even just spark a joy in your sort of day-to-day -day life and um Bring that sense of belonging or happiness or whatever it is you're seeking that day <laughs> into sort of your routine and have that as a bit more tangible way of accessing mindfulness for sure. I think this is a really great point that you make, Tessa. I think kind of one of the greatest benefits of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is that you might go to therapy to, to learn about MBCT, but the skills that you learn from your session can be taken out of kind of like that therapeutic context afterwards and kind of just be widely used throughout your life. Like you don't have to necessarily use that mindfulness to treat a problem. It could just become almost like a lifestyle where in everything you do, you're trying your best to be mindful yeah, of it. Sure. And then hopefully that can bring some 
some positivity back into your life. Yeah, absolutely. I honestly couldn't agree more with that. I think, especially in these times now, everyone needs a bit more positivity <laughs> and a bit of a release from their life for sure. So yeah, I think all of these methods are great for sort of the general population to apply. I definitely think it goes along with that trend that I mentioned, you know, putting a greater emphasis on your mental health. And like you mentioned, Dessa, this is 2020. Everything's bad. <laughs> and I think it's also really given everyone a chance to regroup and you're spending a lot of time inevitably, you know, with yourself and with your thoughts. You know, you have some time for self-reflection and mindfulness is right at the bleeding edge, you know, between formal professional therapy and these really at-home approaches to taking care of yourself and your mental health. And NBCT might be a more formalized version of that, but the principles, the underlying principles of mindfulness are, are still the same and can be applied almost anywhere. Yeah, for sure. Well, on that note, I hope that everyone listening has learned a little bit of how you can apply mindfulness to your daily life. And I wanted to thank you on behalf of my group members. And I hope you guys learned as much as we did. And thank you, Dr. Cresswell, for giving us the opportunity to present this podcast and discuss the importance of mindfulness. So with that, everyone have a great day and remember to be mindful. Thank you and take care. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, William, Tina, Noreen, and Tess. Now, let's introduce our expert. Sure, my name is Zindel Siegel. I'm a distinguished professor of psychology and mood disorders <clears throat> at the University of Toronto, Scarborough. Okay, and uh, what is your area of expertise, specifically when it comes to uh, mindfulness and behavioral therapy? Um, the area that I work in primarily are uh, depression and anxiety-based disorders. Uh, so treatment of uh, depression and anxiety and also importantly, prevention of relapse in these two disorders that have, can have a very chronic and recurring course. And is MBCT one of the ways uh, to prevent relapse? One of the strategies that uh, you would use that has a more long-term lasting effect? Yeah, that's absolutely right. In fact, I think that's where it's ideally positioned to prevent relapse. We know with depression, people can get well, they can get treated and recover, but they still remain at risk. A, a significant proportion of people remain at risk for having a second, third or fourth episode of depression. And MBCT, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, was specifically designed to uh, prevent people from relapsing by teaching them emotion regulation skills that involve a combination of mindfulness meditation and cognitive therapy. And the mindfulness meditation, that being a strategy that people can continue to use once they've finished the initial treatment course, uh, is that the thing that makes it uh, such a powerful tool in preventing relapse? Uh, the sense that people are able to do it on their own at home once they've finished uh, a professional session? You know, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think um, a lot of therapists would say to you that uh, they hope that the things that their patients do in therapy are things they continue with when therapy is over. But sometimes that can be a little bit vague. Um, but for example, cognitive therapy has a lot of emphasis on homework. Uh, filling of thought records, behavioral activation, activity scheduling. And the idea is when you're no longer seeing your cognitive therapist, you should continue to do these things for yourself because they can help you avoid um, episodes of, of emotional upset, um, continuing or perpetuating or even developing 
into a full-blown episode of depression. I think with mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, that's also exactly right. We provide people with resources to let them continue to practice mindfulness meditation, either in very brief forms or in more formal ways where they're sitting for longer periods of time. But the idea is that they become their own therapists. They become their own agents of wellness by practicing mindfulness and practicing this way of looking after themselves. They're also reducing the risk that depression will come back into their lives. Okay. Uh, that makes sense. Uh, how do you feel then about uh, like apps, for example, Calm or uh, Headspace that teach people through their phone, uh, MCBT type of uh, techniques, mindfulness type of techniques. Uh, do you think that that is a worthwhile pursuit or is that still something that we don't know enough about? You know, I, um, I, I think it's a really important question. I think it's an important question because people aren't really looking to experts to give their stamp of approval. People are just downloading these apps and using them. So there's a way in which the public has gotten ahead of us in terms of saying, um, are these helpful? And, and so when we talk about how helpful these apps are, I think it's important to distinguish who's using them. So for the general population, if people want to reduce stress, if people want to learn how to become, let's say, a little bit more aware or present in their lives, I think that these apps are very helpful. They're convenient, they're, they're affordable, there's easy access to them. They're often designed in ways that are, um, you know, animated and, and, and non-stigmatizing. But for me, the threshold of evidence has to be a lot higher when you're saying, can we use these apps to treat depression? Can we use these apps to help vulnerable populations look after themselves? And I don't think that there's a lot of evidence showing that these apps can actually contribute materially to treating people that have an episode of depression or are looking to stay well. I think that the way these apps are designed and built is to provide a general type of coverage of mindfulness meditation, almost as something that can be used for all kinds of situations. But I think as we know, depression and anxiety disorders, they're not uh, generic situations, they're very particular. You can have a very high symptom burden. People can have a uh, resistance to the idea of, of not judging themselves, of being compassionate, of being aware. They may not want to be aware because of uh, how much pain they're in or remember memories that are difficult for them to bear. So I think the content has to be customized uh, to speak to people's experiences who have had depression, who have had anxiety. I'm not sure all of the apps and the way that they're currently built do that. After speaking with Dr. Siegel, we brought the students on to pick his brain as one of the people who helped to develop MBCT. Let's meet our podcasters. Um, my name's Will. I'm a recent graduate from U of C uh, from business. So psych was actually my uh, just my minor. But um, that was only because I, I took a couple of psych classes early on in my degree and I for options. So that's kind of what motivated that. So I was really interested in all the theory uh, behind psych, but being a minor, I got to get out of there right before we had to do any lab tests. So I got to get all the great theory and all the readings and all the interesting stuff. And then I then take my degree and go. So that's, that's my story. But um, yeah, the whole, the whole field really interests me. And same with this uh, particular topic on mindfulness was really interesting to uh, take a deep dive 
uh, with the team. So it's, it's cool to be revisiting it in this format. So I'm really excited our podcast uh, got selected. I did a very similar thing at Ottawa U. I got out of chemistry before I had to actually participate <laughs> in any labs. So exactly. much easier that way. Uh, Tessa. Awesome. Hi, my name is Hi. Tessa. Um, I am a Bachelor of Science uh, in Psychology major. I'm just finishing up my second year, so still have a little bit more to go in my degree. Uh, essentially, what I hope to do with my degree is move into neuropsychology, so hopefully specializing with children, uh, possibly different populations within that. And yeah, the whole podcast about mindfulness and this new sort of evolving uh, therapy and how it's developed over the past few years has been very interesting to learn about. And I'm very grateful to be able to, to uh, have worked with these awesome group members. So where are you studying Tessa? I'm we're all at the University of Calgary. Okay, right. Yeah. Hi. Um, okay, so hi, everyone. Um, I'm Noreen. So I'm a Bachelor of Arts psychology major. Um, I just finished my fourth year of psychology and one more year for me, hopefully. So next year will be my last year at University of Calgary and I'm going into honors next year. So it'll be really exciting since I'll be working with um, Dr. Sears, who's a um, cognitive clinical psychologist. So um, it'll be really interesting to see what the type of work he'll be doing. Um, and yeah, like working in the, with the with the group um, and for this uh, podcast was really interesting since we really kind of did a deep dive into mindfulness, which was really cool to learn about. Um, my name is Tina. I am about to graduate actually. This was my final year. I was doing a combined degree in um, cell biology and psychology. And yeah, was I supposed to say anything else? <laughs> <laughs> that covers the basics that absolutely <laughs> covers it and dr Siegel, uh, if you could introduce yourself too please sure so i'm zindel Siegel. i did my undergrad work at uh, mcgill and then my graduate work at queens and then moved to toronto to do a postdoc at um, the center for addiction and mental health and worked on a depression treatment unit an outpatient treatment unit for people with depression and when I got started, there was a lot of um, skepticism about psychological therapies for depression. Um, antidepressants were seen as really the treatment of choice because depression was seen as a biological disorder and uh, only needed to be treated by antidepressants. And at that time, there was this new therapy called cognitive therapy that was starting to be offered to people with depression. And clinical trials started to show that it could really hold its own as a treatment. And um, in the next 10 years, CBT established itself in a very strong way as a psychological therapy that had equal value to antidepressants. And um, you know, my career basically focused on a lot of that work and then started to focus on people who have been treated for depression but recovered and were then having trouble staying well or preventing relapse. And that's where the mindfulness piece comes in. 
And Will, I think you spoke about that in uh, your podcast, specifically the modern treatments and the way that it went from uh, being antidepressants uh, being prescribed until what we're seeing today in the modern applications of uh, MBCT. And Mm -hmm. one of the things you said that I thought was interesting is that what you found remarkable is that MBCT is inherently accepting, I think you said, of uh the thoughts that people have no matter how dark or how grim they are uh and that that makes it something more accessible uh what do you think about that now can you expand on that a little bit um i i think uh i think it 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 distinguishes mbct from cbt certainly in in that in that manner when we were researching we each sort of divvied up time periods to look into how the field evolved so I was I was looking at sort of the 2010s, the the modern um, kind of kind of status of MBCT, and by then it had started to establish itself as kind of the the, the form that you described, the sort of take the thoughts at face value, and then what can you what kind of meaning and uh, insight can you extract from those thoughts, rather than preemptively try and steer thought patterns in in a certain direction or less negative direction, and that's sort of the um, fork in the road that we found between uh, where kind of CBT went to establish itself and then mindfulness and MBCT had sort of uh, established itself where CBT focused on um, those those processes and kind of changing the approach to thinking mindfulness said what can you learn from your thinking if, if you don't try and disrupt it so I think that that's uh, that still is is probably the most interesting thing about mindfulness to me and I think that aspect makes it, it, it kind of especially accessible to laymen and kind of people without access to professional resources, because there's no question about, you know, do I, uh, do I understand this certain techniques or sort of cognitive processes to, you know, achieve some sort of state of mind and, and, and try these kind of self, uh, self tips, um, on the way you think instead it's more or less, well, you're going about your day and you're thinking how you're thinking. And that's where the starting point is for, for mindfulness rather than, you know, before that, rather than what, how do you control how you think? So I think that's still probably the, um, the thing that stands out about mindfulness to me is that, it's something anyone can really do because you don't need any higher knowledge of how to control the way you think. You really just need to take a hard look at the, at what you're thinking about and start there and start uh, taking that apart and seeing what you can learn from those, uh, from those thought processes. Yeah. Uh, now, Dr. Segal, I, I know that you, uh, when you and I spoke earlier, uh, you really, recommend of course this uh treatment plan that uh you know the eight week uh mbct course generally Uh, but there is a there is a lot to this where people can do it on their own and you've set up a website i think mindful noggin i think it is uh where people can go on and do some of this themselves what kind of balance would you say uh you need in what in doing it yourself or in really jumping in and doing a full program? How would you know the difference? Well, I think it depends on the, um, the clinical need. Uh, sometimes there is no clinical need, but people are just looking for ways of dealing with stress, being overwhelmed, managing a lot of different things at once. So uh, there are real advantages of, of having a mindfulness practice for doing that. 
it allows you to slow things down. It allows you to do one thing at a time. It gives you a little bit more choice about what you want to do next. But sometimes if people are dealing with um, a clinical problem like depression, there are ways in which um, certain parts of the brain, the frontal executive network, the uh, parts of the brain that are involved in planning, problem solving, concentration, reading, um, they can get uh, impaired and not be functioning up to um, their uh, optimum level. And so then you need the structure, the external structure of a treatment, which provides you with goals, with uh, ways of interacting that's predetermined for you. You don't have to figure it out yourself. Like week one, do this. Week two, do that. Week three, do that. And eventually people can start to get some momentum. So it sort of depends on where the person finds themselves. I'm wondering for all of you guys, do you, does it change the way that you think, having done this project, in your day-to-day -day lives? Do you actually pay attention to your own thoughts more simply by having done this project and being aware of it? Yeah, I would say in general, after gathering all of the information that we found, and I sort of worked closely with Noreen in studying the history side of MBCT and how religion was actually a really strong basis for creating a sort of meditative state. And meditation was one of the methods that we found early on uh, that was used quite commonly uh, in many religions in whether they called it meditation or not, even just a prayer state was sort of where that foundation was built off of. Uh, so carrying that forward into now and after what we've learned uh, in the clinical practice and so forth, something as simple as going outside for a walk or taking a second in your day to actually be with yourself and sit calmly or quietly and and reflect on what you've been doing and what's been going on in your life can actually be quite beneficial and I know for me at least uh, and probably many others COVID has been a, a challenging time and having outside resources such as meditation or being able to go outside or just having that peace of mindfulness can actually improve things quite, uh, quite significantly. You know, I think no one gets um, detached from it fully because the place in which you practice is your life. So none of us is living in a monastery. None of us is on a three month retreat in the forest. Um, because we're people who are trying to integrate it into our ongoing lives. We're not monastics, we're not contemplative um, practitioners uh, that have stepped out of society. I think the real challenge is how can you continue to be in society and find a way of using this? So I, I think what Tessa said is very true. It, it, it doesn't have to be something that is only mindfulness meditation. A, a lot of people find that the yoga and even other exercise can provide them with that same perspective on their thoughts. They can just get a little bit of distance from what their mind is saying, and they can um, just see it as it's happening. You know, oh, there's all these thoughts or all these judgments or all these, you know, things about feeling angry, and you can just see them kind of come into the mind. You don't have to fully engage with them. Um, and there's good evidence, actually, that going, in, going for walks, being in nature um, can help um, have a settling effect on the mind, even if you perform the same activity in a city environment and burn the same amount of calories, which, you know, is sort of surprising. It's not the expenditure of calories. It's the fact that when you're in nature, there's a, a kind of sensory engagement 
that most people don't get if you're walking in a, a very busy, crowded city. And there's something about the openness and the spaciousness that sometimes, um, you know, can provide the mind with different things to engage with. So the real challenge is to do it in, in the course of your life. And obviously, if you have a practice of some kind, and that practice can be practicing mindfulness meditation, it can be yoga, it can be going for walks, um, then I think, you know, you always have a chance to stay in touch and close contact with it. Tina, you were talking about uh, in the podcast that different populations and different symptoms can be treated with MBCT versus CBT uh, and the differences between them. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that portion of the project and uh, what you ended up finding in terms of which populations responded better to the one versus the other. Sure. Um, it's been a while since I've written or worked on this project. So hopefully I have all my facts straight. But um, if I remember correctly, when I was doing my research, it was that CBT and MBCT were relatively similar in how effective they were for, um, I believe one of them was depression. But it was that CBT or MBCT was able to be um, effective for the more general population, whereas like CBT was for a more specific population. And so um, we just found that although they're both effective, MBCT would be better just because more people would be able to use it and it was helpful for more people compared to like CBT. Right, so like has a broader usefulness than CBT does specifically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what we were finding. I also remember one component of the research, I can't remember if it was, um, my portion on and actually I realized now I misspoke earlier that Tina had the 2010s and the new stuff and I was the 2000s when a kind of <laughs> bunch of research came up so retroactive correction there but I do remember another piece of research about um, uh, the certain the, there's a difference between the uh, the type of population when they were looking at people who I think maybe had one to three or maybe just one or two uh, depressive episodes in their life yeah. versus people beyond that and um, uh, again, if I remember correctly, the, the finding was that as, as uh, life goes on uh, to someone who suffered depression, the first couple depressive episodes that they have are usually tied to a significant life event. And as time goes on, once they've kind of had those first couple episodes, they're more susceptible to further episodes of depression. And later on in life, third, fourth, fifth, and on episodes of depression can be less linked to a significant life event um so it's not something doesn't doesn't necessarily need to happen your life doesn't necessarily need to get turned upside down but you can still be susceptible um following following uh, multiple episodes of depression so i believe uh, one of the one of the suggestions from the research was that those first couple episodes obviously that's a very um it's a very important time to learn about uh, learn about treatment for 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 uh, depression if it's someone their first time experiencing a depressive episode or second time but as time goes on and it kind of they've the way they think has been affected by those depressive episodes and evolved and they are more susceptible to that is that uh, that mindfulness um, could be could be a, a a really really essential tool to someone who has suffered depressive episodes in the past that may have been linked to significant life events but now is just generally more susceptible to depressogenic thinking. And that's something I think um, where, 
and just even in, in anecdotally having having uh, you know lessons from mindfulness and lessons about ways of thinking and ways of uh, you know directing and, and learning insights from the way you think uh, could be a really really valuable tool for someone uh, in that in that position. Yeah, I found that really interesting as well, Will. I guess for uh, Dr. Seagal, when in terms of you were talking about relapse um, and how you were uh, sort of specializing in um, the prevention of uh, depressive relapse, have you found that there are certain methods in comparison to others that work better um, to prevent relapse? I know we discussed uh things such as meditation or yoga, but in your program that you use with your patients, do you find uh, some things to be more effective than others? You know, one of the things that we've been looking at is um, what do people do after the program is over? Because eight weeks of uh, a structured treatment is not a long time when you think about the rest of the person's life. And so we've looked at what it is that people do when the program has ended and we have one study that we published in 2019 where we followed people for two years afterwards. And what we found was that um, a lot of the people didn't really continue to practice mindfulness meditation in the way that it was taught in our program. So they weren't going into like the full on 30 minute, 40 minute mindfulness practices. But a, a lot of people were doing these small three minute uh, it's called a three-minute breathing space. And it's a brief practice that lets people get grounded in the middle of you know, whatever they're doing and just find a way of getting grounded and, and connect with themselves for three minutes. And then they kind of go back to their life. They can do this anywhere. They can do this at work. They can do this at home. They can do this um, you know, on the subway or uh, in a taxi. You don't want them to do it when they're driving. <laughs> Um, and so what we found was that, that, that the people who, who managed to stay well over these two years, because over the two years, some people relapsed, some people didn't, they were the ones who, who practiced mindfulness a little bit more, but it wasn't, there wasn't a very strong correlation between how, how much people practiced and, um, how little they relapsed. Because if there was a direct relationship, you'd expect a negative correlation, more mindfulness practice lower risk of relapse, less practice, higher risk of relapse. That, that relationship was 0.03, which is practically zero. But what we found was that people who practiced and from their practice were able to extract um, an ability to watch their thinking, something that we call decentering, or to get some psychological distance on their thoughts and emotions and sensations. The people who had higher scores on this decentering were the ones who had the highest protection over two years. So, so what that told us is that by continuing to practice these skills, people are actually growing the capacity for resilience with emotions, negative thoughts, difficult sensations. And that resilience is what can be very helpful in protecting them from relapse. So it's a more complicated picture than we thought initially. Initially, we just thought, well, if the more you practice, the better off you'll be. And turns out that there are a lot of people who practiced and they relapsed anyways. So it's not just straightforward. But if you practice and you're able to then use the fruits of your practice to have this different relationship with negative thoughts or difficult feelings, 
that's really what does the business. That's what ends up looking after you. Awesome. That's really interesting that the sort of long-term effects was obviously very individualized per person, but yeah. I think that is very cool to note that the sort of stick-to-itiveness of mindfulness can can have those lasting and impactful results. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had a question following what you just said, Dr. Siegel. Yeah. Um, is it for the decentering then, is it, if it's not linked, or I guess if practicing mindfulness isn't linked to the relapse and you're saying that decentering is, is yeah. that something that the person can practice or is it almost like um, they have to recognize that that's what they have to do in yeah. order for like the mindfulness to be effective? Well, that's a great question. And I think what's happening, it's, it, it's, it's totally understandable that there may be some people that are practicing mindfulness, but they're trying to get something else out of it. So what is it that they could be getting out of it? And when you look at the common stereotypes of mindfulness, if you go on YouTube and just type mindfulness meditation, you'll see a lot of different ways of guiding mindfulness meditation. Some of these ways of guiding it have music. Some of these ways of guiding it have like colorful lights and like really nice visuals. And some of them will have like, um, like very calming forest sounds or rain sounds. So there is a way in which mindfulness can be taught to help you like chill out, relax, get calm. And that's not how we're teaching it in this program. And I don't think that that's necessarily all that helpful for people who have a history of depression. What we're teaching is mindfulness in a way that helps people um, develop a different relationship to negative thoughts and diff diff difficult emotions. To, to be able to watch and observe them and not be pulled into reacting them automatically. And so that's actually more difficult because sometimes you have to see things about yourself that are difficult to accept or tolerate a difficult state of mind or see a judgmental thought or a harsh judgment. So you have to tolerate something that's difficult. The other way of teaching mindfulness about relaxing and feeling calm tries to get you away from that. And so that's why, that's what I think was happening. You know, the people were practicing, but they were trying to get to a really relaxed state, which was fine. It makes a lot of sense. People are stressed. They want to be able to feel rested and relaxed. But the ability to work with these difficult thoughts or emotions, I think comes from the other kind of focus. Oh, thank you. Yep. And thanks for taking your time to investigate and explore a little bit about mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. It's, 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 uh, it's really gratifying as someone who developed the treatment to see that it continues to generate interest and, um, and, and, and effort. So thanks very much. Many thanks to Dr. Zindel Siegel to Noreen, Tina, Tess, and Will for creating a great podcast and being interested in MBCT. And thank you at home for tuning into the podcast of the Canadian Psychological Association. Mindful is written, produced, edited, recorded, and hosted by me, Eric Bullman. Our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor. See you next week.